Wonderful. It's great to uh, be here again. As Ian said, I get to lead the uh, eldership team uh, at, at uh, King's Church, which is, which is brilliant fun. Uh, we're part of the Catalyst Sphere uh, within New Frontiers. I also serve as part of the wider apostolic team uh, with Catalyst. Um, and I'm a member of one or lead one of the teams that they have. We have hubs in Catalyst. So I'm, I'm part of that process. And one of my passions really is seeing people experience their theology. Um, one thing that's really, really on my heart is, is that we become and we're men that know what it is to kind of rest and enjoy the presence of God and actually encounter uh, the presence of God, to rest in the Father's arms, as it were, um, and, and have an intimate relationship with him as sons. So we can genuinely call him Abba Father. To be honest, when I was kind of first asked by Ian to, to, to speak on faith um, at this conference, I thought, well, that's pretty cool. That's, all, that's great. That's all well and good. And then, you know, like they say, the devil's in the detail. And then, and then I got an email from people that do detail, clearly not Ian. Uh, and, uh, and what I got was, was that it was my subtitle was knowing what it means to soak in the life-changing presence of God. That was my kind of subtitle. And I have to confess that I said to, to Hazel, my wife, what, what do they mean by soaking? Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 I'm okay with the faith to dwell stuff. But what, what do we really mean when we, when we talk about soaking? And I get that kind of general imagery, you know, of just kind of resting in God's presence. I think of worship and just kind of maybe lying on the floor, resting peacefully. I don't know about you, when I do that, I tend to fall asleep. Um, so I call, I call that sloking, which is a, a, a mixture of sleeping and soaking um, together. So it's, uh, but it's, it's, it comes with me with that kind of, kind of image, um, you know, getting your hipster on, just kind of flouncing around, singing about sloppy wet kisses and, and stuff like that. And just that's kind of what are the imagery that I kind of have. We kind of try and get to some some state of kind of peace and, and sleep. That's, what, that's the kind of imagery that, that I have when I think about soaking. Um, uh, but I don't think that's it at all. I, don't, I, I really don't. And I, I have to say that, that the times I've had where I've really encountered God's presence um, in, a, in a very kind of material way, if you like, have been super, super valuable um, and special, special times. I love it when the presence of God comes in in such a way where the holiness of God is just so evident that there's nothing anyone can do other than to just rest kind of in his presence. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, we had a, uh, I was preaching one Sunday and just kind of felt in the moment that actually I should pray that evening. So it wasn't a kind of scheduled prayer meeting. Um, you know, normally we do the whole email and texting thing. You know, we work really hard to get people to our prayer meetings. And then normally we get 10. I'm sure that's not like that in your churches. But, but for mine, it was a real struggle. But I literally just during this, this sermon just said, look, tonight I'm just going to be at our, our building and we're going to, uh, me and Hazel are going to pray. That's how Hazel found out what she was doing that evening. Um, and, and a true story. Uh, and, and that was it. It was, it was just a passing comment. And that evening when we went there, it was packed. It was absolutely rammed. And, and it, there was no rhyme nor reason to it. And as we just begin to, began to start kind of thanking God, suddenly the presence of God came. The holiness of God entered the room. 
And for like 40 minutes, nobody spoke. People were just sat on the floor, lying on the floor, kneeling on the floor. It was just so thick, the holiness of God. And then, one by one, people started to publicly confess sin. Just such was the, the presence of God kind of in that, in that moment that there was, there was nowhere else to go. Because it was so evident that, that God was there. And there was that sense, I guess, of, of soaking up, if you like, God's presence in that moment, just in enjoying him. And I remember kind of thinking, oh, it's kind of time, time to be kind of moving on and just saying to people, look, if you want to go, you can go. It's time to go. And nobody, nobody moved. Nobody wanted to, to go. Everybody just wanted to linger in that sense of the, the, the real sickness, if you like, of, of the presence of God. It reminded me a little bit of, uh, of Joshua when he used to kind of, what I call, go in and mop up the presence of God after Moses in the tent of meeting. You know, in Exodus 33, 11, we read this. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. There was that, that sense of him thinking, I'm just going to soak this up. Um, for all I can, uh, for everything that it's, it's worth. And I find that those, those encounters with God that are like that leave me feeling wanted more, and more of his presence, but they also fill me with, with a desire to see his kingdom come. So you, you come out of those encounters wanting to see God's mission fulfilled. Um, and, uh, you know, Joshua was like that. He, he lingered in that passage in the presence of God. He encountered the presence of God, that intimate kind of presence of God in the tent of meeting. But if you, if you get to Joshua 5, uh, chapter 5, you read that actually he encountered the presence of God in, in the form of the commander of the armies of the Lord. And he's thinking about, Joshua's thinking about how do I take um, the, the, the city? How do I take Jericho? And uh, this epiphany of God appears and, and he says are you with us or are you with the enemy and he goes no he says I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord and he says and I am here and Moses had said if you remember if your presence doesn't go with us don't send us up from here and that was God saying I am here so we encounter his presence in those two kind of different ways there's that sense of the intimacy the the awe just that I, I can't do anything other than just soak up his presence. But actually there's an encounter with his presence that lead us into war and to battle, which is what Joel was so brilliantly talking about this morning when he was talking about encouragement. He was balancing the two things. It's not just, come on, you're great, but actually there's those different elements because actually there's a battle to fight. And so personally, I think that we can enter into what I will call counterfeit encounters with God in that sense, because an authentic encounter with Almighty God, with the holy presence of Almighty God, must result in worship, but it must also fill us with a passion for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It, it must do both of those things. And as we worship, as we encounter him and soak in his presence, we'll, we'll catch a glimpse of, we'll have a, a vision of heaven because we will see him as he is. And we know that Jesus' mission is all about seeking and saving the lost. 
And so we'll, we'll catch a glimpse of who he is. And I believe an, uh, an authentication, if you like, as, uh, in those times as being genuine is, is that they reveal in us a desire, a, a willingness to volunteer, a willingness to be his vessels to fulfill the assignments that is given his church. And so it will produce in us that desire that we will demonstrate, be those who demonstrate his, his love and his compassion for a, a lost and hurting world. Now, we have to be really, really careful when we think about this, when we think about what it is to kind of pursue and dwell in God's presence. There is a danger. There's several, actually, but there, there's one particular danger. But the main one is, is that we must never pursue worship as a means to something else. Okay? must never pursue worship as a means to something else. Worship is both the means and the end. It's both the means and the end. We soak in the presence of God, not so that our lives are changed, but so he is worshipped and adored. That, that's why we worship him. Not so we are changed, but so he is worshipped and adored. And I've heard people, I'm sure you have as well, say things like this. Well, you know, you, you, you can see people kind of, you know, in the excesses maybe of some of the outpouring of the Spirit and you, you can look at them and, and you can be quite cynical. Um, you know, and I've heard people say this. Look, if after all those so-called encounters you're not changed, what's the point? Anyone heard that? Said it? Okay, don't put your hand up. I know I have, and I do have some sympathy with the sentiment, but the reality is the purpose of my encounters with Heavenly Father are not for me. They're for Him. They're so I can pour out my worship, my love and my affection on Him. The point, if you want to use that kind of language is that he is worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my worship and my adoration and my honour. That's the point. That's the point of wanting to worship him and be in his presence. So the point is not we are changed. The point is that he is worshipped because he's worthy. However, in the amazing economy of God, in this upside-down, topsy-turvy world that we call the kingdom of God, where the, last, the, 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 the first are last and the greatest are the least, it's an upside-down kingdom. In that economy, when we come and worship him for no other reason than he is worthy, then we are changed. And so there's a subtle difference, but the truth is we don't worship in order to be changed. We worship because he is worthy. And as we worship in the economy of heaven, we become changed. Because we see him, we'll be made more like him. And so we don't soak in his presence in order to experience life change we soak in his presence because we know as we bow down, he is lifted up. And somehow in this back-to-front kingdom, we are changed. But the point is that he's worshipped, not that we are changed. And so I want us to, to look this afternoon just quickly at a very famous passage I'm sure you'll all be familiar with in Isaiah. And, and I want us to consider what it means to soak in the presence of God. 
So Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 9 says this. In the, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. And with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal and then he, that he had taken with a tongue from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go. It's a great passage. I'm sure we've all heard it uh, a million times before. But here is quite the encounter with the presence of God. If, if we want to be kind of soaking in the presence of God, that, that's quite the encounter right there. Um, and we see that he's had some kind of vision. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about, you read your Bible and you think, well, a vision, what, what do you mean? Well, the Bible kind of describes different kinds of visions for us. Um, one is, is the, the kind of a vision that we have in our mind's eye kind of thing. So, you know, when someone says on a Sunday morning, you know, I've had a picture of dot, 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 dot. And, and all that saying is, is really, I've, 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 in my mind's eye, I can see. Now, we believe that to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it's that, that sense of their, their, their eyes have kind of comprehended a, a picture. It's a, it's a vision of the mind. So that's, that's one type of vision. There are also kind of visions that, that uh, we might call open visions, where there's an image that you see with your natural eyes. You can interact with them in the open vision, yet you remain aware of the world around you. People who've experienced uh, open visions that I've spoken to said it's like watching TV, but you can interact with it. Another type of vision are ones that we'd be familiar with, like dreams. So, you know, Holy Spirit-inspired dream that you have while asleep that you can remember when you wake up. Lots of examples of these in the Bible. The one you're most familiar with probably is Pharaoh's dream that Joseph kind of interpreted. And then the final kind of type of vision we read about in the Bible is trances. This is where someone's having a kind of out-of-mind experience. The person's engulfed in, in the spirit. They're completely unaware of their surroundings. You can pick them up and move them. Apparently, never done it. But uh, you can pick them up and move them and they're completely kind of unaware. And uh, there's lots of stories of this in the Bible. The early church, both Peter and Paul experienced trances. Um, and Paul said of his trance that he wasn't sure whether it, it, it was bodily. So he'd actually been bodily taken, transported to heaven. Or whether it was an out-of-body experience. He, he didn't know. Okay, so these are the types of visions that we read in, in the Bible. And so in this passage, Isaiah says he's had a vision. He doesn't really explain what, what kind of one it is. It sounds to me very much like he was caught up into, into something. But it doesn't really matter how he saw the Lord on the throne. But it was clearly a very powerful experience for him. Now, I don't know about you, but kind of when I read these kinds of things in the Bible, I think we just... 
We're so used to reading the many of us. We don't really kind of think it through. So we just read it as if it's kind of like an everyday occurrence. Until we meet someone. And then we meet someone who's had a kind of open vision. And then our, our skepticism and our cynicism perks up. You know it's true. All right? And, and, and suddenly we're thinking, well, that, that sounds a bit, a bit weird. Um, and actually, I just want to kind of mention that in terms of kind of just to say that look, cynicism and skepticism are, are not godly qualities. And they're actually code word for unbelief. We're Brits. We don't like to kind of actually say what we think. And so we use skepticism and cynicism. But actually, it's just, um, it's just unbelief. And I haven't got time now, but, you know, go and read the story of, of Jesus when he goes back to his hometown. And it said that he couldn't do the miracles that he wanted to do. Why? Because of their unbelief. Jesus was limited in what he could do because of people's unbelief. And you will limit what Holy Spirit can do in your life and in the life of other people around you. That's the scary bit. So that whole village and town were robbed of signs and wonders that Jesus was going to perform because of some people's unbelief. It's a massive thing. The um, Bible says with many advisors there's wisdom. So, so it's good to have lots of ideas in the room. It's good to have kind of robust discussion. But... I think if you believe you're a natural skeptic or you believe that you know, your, your gift is to see everything that's wrong, that, that's, I'm not, that's not a gift okay? in, in that sense. I think when God gives us gifts, I, I, we can use them in two ways. First way is what I call off the balcony. So you can use your gift off the balcony, which is using your gift to its fullest potential. But we can also operate our gift out of the basement. When we operate out of the basement, we're using the gift in a very negative way. And what I feel the Lord's saying to those guys that have said, yeah, that's me, is I believe God's given you a gift, but your gift is to strengthen the weak. And what he's saying to you is the gift I've given you is to strengthen the weak. It's to strengthen weak plans. It's to strengthen weak motives. It's to strengthen weak ideas. That's what your gift looks like off the balcony. But if your gift is to basically criticize and tear down, then that's operating out of the basement. It's the same gift. And so I just really feel the Lord is saying to you, your gift is to strengthen the weak, being able to see what's wrong, to be at a robustly Talk about that and help not to bring down but to strengthen. And that's what I believe the word of the Lord is. So, but I thank you, Lord God, that you give us so many gifts that you lavish upon us. And Father, first of all, we want to say, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us when we use your gifts out of the basement rather than off the balcony. Father, forgive us when we, we use our gifts in ways that tear down and not build up. And, and Father, I just want to declare, Lord God, your truth over these guys now. Where they've partnered with the lie that says they're a natural cynic, they're a natural skeptic, they're, everything's always half full. Father, we, we repent with them for believing that lie. 
Lord, and now we stand with them in your truth that that gift that you have given them is to strengthen the weak. Lord, it's to strengthen weak plans, not to rip them up, but to strengthen them. It's to strengthen weak ideas. And Father, we pray, Lord, now, would you, in your grace, turn them around. Father, where maybe they've been difficult to, to work with, let it be a joy now because they're there to strengthen weak plans. That to build up by recognizing what's frail, where the holes are. And so, Father, we say, Lord, your church, we need you. We need those gifts. We need gifts that, that spot the inadequacies. We need gifts that recognize the failings so that they might be built up into strong plants, into strong teams, into strong churches. And Father, we ask this for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Woo! Wonderful. God's so good. Isn't he? Yeah, I think he's good. So we come back to Isaiah then. In this encounter, through whatever kind of vision it was he was having, there was this authentication of the spirit on it. And what authenticated Isaiah's experience was the speed with which he volunteered. Okay, so the, the authentication of his encounter in the presence of God was the speed with which he volunteered. And Isaiah encountered the throne room of God as he was caught up worshipping, as he was caught up in that vision. The first thing that Isaiah realises is, is that God is holy, that he is powerful, that he is awesome. That's the first thing. As he's caught up in the presence of God, he suddenly senses and realises probably what he already knew. I mean, it's not new news, but suddenly there was a sense of the reality, the experience of what he knew in his head suddenly came crashing in. And th this should be, you know, our heart when we come to worship, that we are worshipping an almighty, awesome, holy, wonderful God. And, um, and as we come in to, to, to worship him, there should be that sense of awe. And it's, it's a, an interesting kind of paradox, isn't it? How we want that intimate relationship of being able to call him Abba, Father. But actually there's also that sense of awe and, and, and fear. Not in you know, our sense to understand of fear, but just a, a fear of he's just so big. He's just so awesome. He's just so holy. Should fill us with, with awe as we encounter him. We should feel that actually, you know, if there's unconfessed sin in our life, then that should fill us with fear. Not fear that we're in trouble kind of fear, but a sense of I'm, I'm un, unholy right now. And I'm in the presence of an awesome, an awesome God. And when unbelievers come in amongst us as we gather, they too should be able to see him as holy when we worship. In this environment of worship and the manifest presence of God, this kind of glorified presence of God that Isaiah was seeing, he encounters 
this holy, awesome God, there's a number of responses that he makes that I think will be helpful for us as we consider faith to dwell kind of in his presence. The first thing, as I've said, is, is that he, he realizes very quickly in this atmosphere of worship and, and encounter that he's actually unworthy to be there. He is unclean. He's all too aware of his errors, of his, of his failures. And as a game for us, I do believe that when we worship, we should expect the Holy Spirit to reveal to us any unrepented sin. Likewise, as I've said, if, if non-Christians are in the room, they, they, they should sense this holiness of God as we worship him. And so the, the unsaved will know that actually I too am a man of unclean lips. That should, if, if we believe that God inhabits the praises of his people, if, if his manifest presence is here, then that should be our experience and the experience of those who come with us. And this does have an interesting dynamic when we consider the phrase seeker-sensitive services. And I'm just putting it out there. Now, I believe with all my heart that we should be massively aware of visitors. We should be super friendly, super encouraging, super inviting. But we shouldn't be dumbing down kind of what we do in order to make them feel comfortable. Because the reality is, if the presence of God is with you, they are not going to feel comfortable because they are of unclean lips. Now, it doesn't mean we don't care for them or we don't love them, but the reality is, is that if we are expecting to be dwelling in the presence of God, encountering the presence of God, then there's got to be that sense of his holiness having an impact on us and on those who are around us. And the reality is, I don't actually believe it puts people off. It makes them feel uncomfortable, but equally, it doesn't put them off. That's been our experience as a, as a church. Because how can they or we feel comfortable with unrepented sin in the presence of a holy God? There's something wrong with that picture. And so, whilst we want them to feel as comfortable as is possible... They're not going to feel entirely comfortable unless the presence of God isn't actually present. I'm just putting it out there, just as a sense. Because in Acts, we see this. If you look at Acts 5, 12 to 14, it says this. So the church has just had 3,000 people saved. They're all kind of loving life. And they were all together in, in Solomon's portico. And then it says that this of the others. None of the rest dared join them. Because the presence of God was so thick and so the rest, the unsaved, they, they just didn't dare join them because the holiness of God was so manifest. But they did hold them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. That does not make any sense. The passage. So none of them dared join them, but multitudes were added to them. That makes no sense. Unless it's a God thing. Where there's that uncomfortable sense of I'm a man of unclean lips. But the compassion and love of God so overwhelms them that it draws them in. 
So with early church and with Isaiah, we see that in the powerful presence of Almighty God, in the throne room of God where his glory dwells, the encounter brings him to a realisation of his unworthiness before a holy and powerful God. And what's revealed to him in that atmosphere of worship is actually the Father heart of God. Isaiah sees God in his awesomeness. He recognises his own unworthiness. And as he's soaking up that, that encounter with God, we see God makes a way for him. He doesn't just leave him there in that sense of, yeah, I'm really holy and you're a worm and, and you're unworthy to be here. But we, we read that bit where the, the, the angel comes and the coal from the altar is brought, which represents that atoning sacrifice of Jesus. It, it comes and it, it touches his lips and, and it atones for his sin. And that angel speaks and says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And so equally for us as we worship, we find ourselves in his presence. We see his awesomeness, we see his power, we experience his presence, but we also experience him as a loving father who made a way for us. And now his son, Jesus, who was given for us so that our sin would be atoned for. But more than that, and it's in this passage, the guilt of our sin, our past misdemeanors, have also been taken away. That's massive. It's not that your sin's been removed from you. You're no longer going to be punished as your sin deserves. But your guilt has been taken away. You know, often when we're talking the gospel messages, we talk about the whole kind of courtroom deal, don't we? That, you know, sentence is passed, and then Jesus kind of steps in and takes your place, which is a wonderful picture but it doesn't address the issue of your guilt. Because sentence has been passed, you are guilty. It's just someone else is paying the price for your sin, but you're still declared guilty. You've not been acquitted. But you have, because your guilt has been taken away. And that, as we worship him, we're in that, that wonderful presence of God. Actually, we, we not only come face to face with a holy God who brings to our minds our sin, if it's unrepented of, but actually he, he loves us enough not just to make a way, but to remove our guilt from us. Jesus sacrificed himself so that we could be reconciled fully. Father, we're just going to declare your truth over our brothers, that not only... Have you taken away their sin, but you've removed their guilt from them? Father, that is the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord God, right now that these guys are able to literally take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That they not only can declare they're forgiven, but they can declare that they're free from guilt and regret. And Father, we just speak truth. We just speak truth. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so guilt's removed, which is good news. Um, and so as we're, we're thinking of this encounter that we're having with God, there's a sense that he's holy, that he is, is made a way for our sin and our guilt to be forgiven. And we're in that, that sense of actually, so what now? What, is, what happens next? And 
I want to say that I think it's near impossible to have a genuine encounter with God and then turn away from his request for volunteers. In Isaiah's encounter, God speaks and he's not silent as we, as we encounter him. He speaks to us. He's a speaking God. The Bible says that he does nothing without first speaking to his servants, the prophets. Okay, God is a speaking God. We should expect that. We should expect to hear him speaking to us in those encounters. We, we, we should expect it. it. It might be a, a tender word, but it also can be a word of assignment. He could be calling us to something. And that, that's why we, we want to make space, I guess, in our meetings, as we've done here, to, to hear God's voice speaking to us, to, to give him room to, to kind of speak to us. And, you know, authentic encounters mean that we're going to hear God's voice. But also, as Isaiah was, we're going to be quick to step into the gap. Because if, if we have seen him, if we have encountered him, then how can we possibly not respond to him when he, when he speaks? We're called, as I've said, to be worshippers. To be a people who soak in his presence. And, and we want to do that. I trust we want to do that. And to expect to have powerful encounters with Father God by his spirit. But what authenticated Isaiah's experience in the presence of God was his instantaneous willingness to volunteer. To be Father's messenger to a, a needy world. And as I say, it's nearly impossible to see his heart. And to then turn a cold shoulder to his search for a volunteer. In his book, Experience the Impossible, Bill Johnson says, says this. And if ever you kind of thought there was a context for understanding what soaking was all about, that, that's where you'd go. Um, uh, but this is a fantastic quote. Worship is the ultimate ministry. But I run into people who often consider themselves to be great worshippers but do nothing else outside of that activity. I question the experience of anyone who says he's encountered the Lord but is not willing to serve. That's a statement right there. I question the experience of anyone who says they've encountered the Lord but is not willing to serve. And that was Isaiah's response to his encounter, uh, his realization of who God is, his power, his holiness. It, it led him to realize how far short that he'd come. It, it led him to understand that God had made a way for his sin and his guilt to be removed from him. But then when God speaks and says, who will I send? His immediate response is, here I am, send me. And gents, this is what authenticates us as his people and, and, and fills us with that faith to dwell in the life-changing presence of God. And I'm trying to be careful when what I say next, and I'm sure I'll be misquoted, but that's okay. But what authenticates us as his people is not our adherence to right theology, although I honour and value good theology. What authenticates us as his people is not agreement over values, even, although that's helpful and brings clarity, what authenticates us as his people is our response to our encounters with him. What authenticates us are our responses in, in the times of those life-changing uh, presence encounters. What authenticates us is how we respond in those times. The result of an authentic encounter in the presence of God is that we become more aware 
of our assignment to bring the kingdom to a needy world. That's, that's the result. And that actually we have an awareness that we are carriers of his presence. What sets us apart as authentic people of encounter is, in the presence of God is, is, is the evidence of the presence of God in our lives. So the, the point and the purpose of these encounters is to worship him and worship him alone. Okay? I said that right at the beginning. Okay? Worship is the means and the end. We worship because he is worthy. So the purpose of worship is, is to worship him because he's worthy. But the result of them is our willingness to hear him and to respond and say, Here I am, send me. And God's response, as we, as we see there, is that he says, we'll go. He's just looking for willing volunteers. Not necessarily even qualified ones. Just willing ones. And so we need faith to dwell, to remain faithful to the mission. We need to know what it is to be in the life-changing presence of God. Not so we can be all fluffy and have a, a lovely time and come away feeling like, wow, you know, me and God, we're like this. We just, that's great. And we do. But what authenticates it is, is that we are changed and we volunteer for the task that God has given us. I often say in my church is that, you know, we need to have an encounter in order to be an encounter. You know, when we're out there, we, we, we need to be the encounter of God for people. When they meet us, they should meet him. When they, when they experience us and they think you're so kind, you're so generous, you're so loving, it's because they're, they're experiencing God in us because we're his image bearers. But in order to do that, we need to be those who encounter him and spend time, and spend time with him. So when Father says, who will go? Actually, that we're there, front foot. Yeah, here I am. Send me. Let me tell you something. Jesus did not do all he did so you could do nothing. We're saved by grace, not by works. Who believes that? What's the very next part of that sentence? Because God has created works for you. You're not saved by works. You're saved for works. That's what it says. You're saved by grace for works. That he's planned for you before the creation of the world. There's work to do. And God's saying, who will go? And it's those times in his presence that we realize, actually, here I am, send me. I'll finish with a, another quote from Bill Johnson. All who consider themselves abandoned worshippers of God must ask themselves this question. Is my passion for his presence measurable outside of the expression of worship? If not, changes must be made. Our love for God is measured by our love for people. The unseen realities in our lives, i.e. our love for God, must be measurable in the seen, i.e. our love for people. Some big statements there. But actually, worship changes us but we don't do it to be changed it's the result we do it because he is worthy and we want to be those men i trust 
who are able to say, here I am, send me. And so it's really important that you cultivate those tent of meeting moments. You're not just waiting for them to happen. Well, I'll just wait for a vision to get caught up in heaven like Isaiah did. No, be like Joshua. Create those tent of meeting moments. Find the places where you can go. Give time so you can go. So I'm going to end. I've got a minute left. If you feel like, man, I need to do something about this, then why don't you stand and I'll pray for you as we go. If you don't, I'm stood. I need to do something about it. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Father, thank you, Lord, that you have spoken this afternoon. Thank you, Lord God, that there have been things you've identified in lives this afternoon, God, because you speak. And Lord, we want to be men who respond and say, yeah, here we are, send us, Lord God. But Father, we recognize that we actually got some work to do. I've got some work to do, Father, in, in, in pursuing those tent of meeting moments and making them happen. So, Father, I pray, Lord God, would you catch him up in encounters with you, Lord God, that would result in in us realizing our unworthiness, but recognizing all that you've done in Jesus to know that we're saved and that Jesus didn't do all he did, so we get to do nothing. But, Lord, we want to be those who say, here I am, send me. Amen.